Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. Times get tougher even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, October the 30th, 2019. This is episode 2541 of the Survival Podcast. It is Wednesday, and that means it's time for an interview. I know we haven't been on our regularly scheduled programming this week. I am doing some change-ups this week, but we are sticking to this. I have a great guest for you. Her name is Ariel McLaughlin. She is a pretty awesome lady. She lives off-grid in a tiny home in the western mountains of Wyoming, and she has a pretty amazing life that is really built on freedom. Uh, she's got a great YouTube channel and some other cool social media you can check out with a lot of photography. Uh, some of it's really beautiful, but uh, this is a gal who just decided, you know, working nine to five, paying bills to live in a house that you don't spend much time in, spending most of your time in a mobile metal coffin we call a car going back and forth. Just one for her. Just wasn't going to do things that way and decided to design her life her own way. And she did that as a member of the tiny house community, and she picked a place, well, colder than I want to live. But we'll talk about how there are some advantages with cold climates when it comes to off-grid living and a bunch of other cool stuff with Ariel in just a moment. Before we bring her on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. Hey, if you want to live off-grid, you want to make sure you have a way to make sure water is purified. If you want to live on-grid... You want to make sure there's a way to make sure your water is purified. You want to make sure you have the best, safest drinking water that you can. And the best way I know to do that economically is with a Berkey water filtration system. Uh, Berkeys are known by most in the prepping world to be the, uh, kind of the best of the best, the gold standard for water filtration. And they look great, and they really have no moving parts, so they can't break. Um, the Berkey system is great, but why get it from the Berkey guy? Well, why not? Why would you get it from some random dude who decided to start selling Berkeys at gun shows last week because his brother Bob told him the prepping industry was a good idea? Why wouldn't you get the original, the original Berkey guy, the guy that's been sponsoring the show for almost 10 years now? Check him out. Find his website at directive21.com. He does do discounts for members of the MSB as well. So if you are an MSB member, make sure you get your discount. Next up today, ButcherBox.com. You know, ButcherBox is an example of like a perfect sponsor for me because they want me to tell you to eat meat, Okay. They want me to tell you to eat grass-fed meat. They want me to tell you to eat pastured pork and pastured poultry. Well, okay. And then they want to pay me in meat. These jerks, they don't want to give me money. They wanted to pay me in meat. Guess what? I get a great big giant box of meat once a month from ButcherBox, and you should too. Uh, maybe you don't have a podcast where they will pay you in meat, but you can get it for a really great price. Um, check out, go to the grocery store and go to the little bitty section and see what a 10-ounce ribeye of grass-fed beef costs. And then price it at ButcherBox. It's about half the price of ButcherBox. And they ship it to your house. You don't have to leave the house. Uh, and you get $10 off a month as an MSB member, which is $120 a year. Uh, you can just get $10 off, or you can use it for free bacon for life. It's up to you. Check them out today, ButcherBox.com. And remember, get your discount. And those of you who are not MSB members but are thinking ButcherBox might be right for you, um, I don't really care generally if you use my banners on my site. I don't really do any kind of tracking. I don't do affiliate sales with the sponsors or anything like that. But I have a special deal. It's a one-time deal instead of a recurring deal for non-members. Uh, you can find that at the survivalpodcast.com by clicking on the ButcherBox banner. But if you're going to do ButcherBox, 
it pays you to be an MSB member immediately, so consider doing that today, too. With that, let's bring our special guest on again. Her name is Ariel McLaughlin. She lives in the western mountains of Wyoming, where she tells me that right now, today, it is 10 below zero. Brr. It's like 48, and I'm ready to put on a full Carhartt coverall suit before I go outside. So uh, I'm not about that. But she is, and she loves living off-grid. That I am all about. And with that, hey, Ariel, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Good morning. I'm glad to have you with us today. We're going to be talking about remote living in a cool tiny house in the uh, far north regions of Wyoming where it's really cold. I bet it's cold right now. Before we do that, though, kind of let's get the audience familiar with Ariel. Like, let's go back to like spacing out in study hall, checking out guys or something and trying to figure out what to do with your life and uh, how that ends up with you living in the middle of nowhere. Well, uh, it is very cold. It's about minus 10 at my house right now. Um, sure, a lot different than your climate, but back to high school. Um, I was never in that position, actually. I'm very thankful to have been homeschooled my whole life, so I was never sitting cool. in a study hall. I was uh, probably my equivalent would have been I was managing making lunch uh, after weeding some rows in the garden while watching a younger sibling and getting my math work done on laying on my bed in my bedroom at home. So that's what I was doing about then. Um, I grew up in a household with being the eldest of seven kids. So there was nine people in our house and my parents, um, my, my, they weren't like full-time farmers. They would have had kind of a, a farmette. We always had some combo of a, a large garden, a couple chickens, cats, a dog, turkeys, a llama, milk goats, you know, something like that at various sure. times of the years. And um, being homeschooled, a lot of our schoolwork got to be things like taking care of a house and being the oldest, I got to spend a lot of time taking care of younger siblings and growing food and doing cooking and canning and all that kind of stuff. Um, when I graduated high school through a, um, a diploma program for local homeschoolers where they kind of check off your requirements and say, here's an actual diploma, not a, just a GED, which I've never used in my life since actually. But anyway, I've got one. Um, I went to start working at a little local greenhouse slash dried flower shop where I spent about four years um, growing plants and uh, both flowers and and food plants and selling them and doing flower arranging and such. And then I uh, took a road trip with a good friend when we were in our late teens and drove all over the West. We both had an interest in photography and we had seen lots of cool places to take photos of that we'd never been to and said, we should go do this before we're old someday and say, we're saying we wish we had. So we put about 10,000 miles on my little tiny Toyota car, lived in the car, um, spent three and a half weeks driving all around the mountain West uh, the whole way basically from Mexico up to Canada and a whole lot of stuff in between. When I came back from there, I think I'd probably already kind of fallen in love with the West just from reading books and, and such even before I went West, but I definitely wanted to come back. So I asked my boss at the time if she would mind if I went and worked like at a ski resort somewhere in the West just for the winter because I know several other people who have done that. Her son had done that at one point, and winter's kind of the slow time with a business like that. And she said, sure, no problem. Just promise me you're coming back. And I was like, of course, sure. You know, I sent in applications to every major ski resort anywhere in the West. And the first one to reply to me with a job was here in Wyoming, 
And so I said, sure. And I came out here and I really loved it. And by the time I left that winter, I went home and told her I'm back because I promised I'd be back and spring is your busiest time. And I am quitting and I am moving for good. And I've been in Wyoming ever since. So with all of that said, you know, why did you decide to live in such a tiny place? You live in a really small home. I mean, talk about the size of it and all. And I mean, you could have done all of that and maybe had a little more space. What made you key in on becoming part of the tiny house community? Well, it was originally for me, it was kind of a necessity thing. I did live here for many years in a, a various string of, you know, rental townhomes and condos and stuff like that. Uh, the housing market in the area is extremely tight. Uh, there's no, there's no real room to just like sprawl and live 10, 15 minutes further away because if you get out of what is currently a town, you're either in national park, uh, national forest or wilderness areas where you can't just, you know, sprawl and build a new house. So the housing market is extremely tight. And after I'd been here for, what would that have been? Seven or eight years. Um, my roommate and I, who'd been living together for quite a few years, lost the house we were living in at the time because the owner sold it and, in the process of looking for somewhere to live, there just really wasn't a whole lot of options, period, and most of them were not within my budget. And by that, I mean, like, rent was more than 100% of my income, not not 30% or whatever. Um, so I was looking at other options, and my first thought was, well, I could live in a van. I've got, you know, some friends who have lived in a van for, for varying lengths of time, some of them for many years. And so I was thinking, well, I'll go that route. I, I like the area. I'd like to be able to stay here. I have, you know, contacts here, job here, friends here. I'm, I'm not really looking to leave. And in the process of kind of looking at van conversions and options, I pretty quickly ran into somebody talking about tiny house. And I thought, oh, when I live somewhere where it's really cold and snows for at least eight or nine months a year, an insulated little house sounds like a way better idea than a van or even an RV. So I pretty quickly changed my mind and started started going down that route. And that is how I ended up in my little place here, which you said talk about the size. It's about 158 point something square feet. Um, that would be the downstairs. I do have a sleeping loft when you count square footage on normal houses. You don't count. Uh, space that you can't stand up in and I can't stand up in my loft. It's fine. What I do is sleep there. But if you counted that as well, it'd be a little over 200 square feet. So anyway, pretty small little place. And that's where I've been living now for going on six years. So um, with all that, how how did you find a spot to put the place? Do you own this land? Or are you on like a land lease? I know the house is mobile, right? Yes, the house is on wheels. It's It fits within all the standard road legal dimensions, so I don't need an oversized permit or anything. As long as you have a truck that is big enough, like a one-ton diesel or something, to move a fairly heavy trailer, I could go down any road in the whole country with it. Um, finding a place to put it, that is usually the most complicated part of having a tiny house because it is on wheels and there are various... They're becoming various amounts of rules and laws in different places all over the country about what category that fits into because basically it's something different that, that hasn't fit into any neat category governments have made for it yet. Um, but what I did is I started asking some various local friends here who I knew had some amount of property about, you know, renting a, a place on their property to park it and none of the ones I thought might be an option 
ended up working out for one reason or another. And then at the time I was actually working at a, a restaurant and the one gentleman I know because he's a regular there, I was just discussing that with him, not, not asking him. I know he's a caretaker for a very large property for some fairly wealthy folks. Um, and in the process of just discussing, you know, what I was mm. thinking at, he said, Oh, you can park on the place I work. Well, I'm pretty sure you can. I got to go ask my bosses for sure. And he came back a day later and it's like, oh, yeah, they said we know who you are. You know, we've been there for for a meal before. We know who Ariel is. Tell her to come on over. And it's worked out to be absolutely amazing. They have a, a large ranch. I trade them um, some labor for being able to park here. I do. They do have a full time, you know, caretaker, but they're they used to hire somebody else to be the assistant whenever there was projects that required more than one person. I now basically do that job and they don't pay me and I don't pay them. And so it's worked out really well so far for both of us that I get a awesome spot to park my house. Their property's so big. I'm tucked back in a little clearing in the woods. We can't even see each other. Neither of us would even know the other one existed on the same property, but I help out with the things they need done and I get a pretty awesome spot to live. You know, when this whole kind of tiny house movement started picking up, tons of people were doing some version of what you just said. They found a place they could put their home for a time. And mm -hmm. I always looked at that and kind of thought, you know, that I don't know how how reliable that is because, like, not everybody can do that. You know, good for you if you can. But then what I've noticed over the years is I've seen literally hundreds of people do this, and I've never found anybody. It's like, you know, I, I couldn't find anyone that I couldn't make a deal with. And yeah, I have it, it, it doesn't matter if it's, like, way out in the remote sticks like you are or, you know, in some urban backyard and everything in between. I've seen people find it work, and it, it makes a lot of sense because generally there's some value exchange that can be done. You know, either you want work done or, you know, some small amount of money that I have. Let's say I just say, you know what, I'll, I'll rent you this spot for $100 a month. It's pretty cheap. Mm -hmm. And it's a hundred dollars I didn't have, and I'm not using it. So why, you know? Or I need some things done. Or if I have a remote piece of property, and you live there, I got a set of eyeballs when I'm not right. there. Like so, there's always some sort of value for value exchange, and you know, not everybody's going to live in a tiny house. So I don't know that you would, you know, by the numbers of the number of people that want to live this way, ever run out of some deal that can be made like that. And I think that's one of the Because I'm not a fan of wheels on a house. I'm not. But it's one of the really strong arguments for it because let's say you decide I don't want to live here anymore. Not uh -huh. because they want you to leave, but you just decide, I, you know what, I'd kind of like to see what Montana's like. Been in Wyoming a while. You can just move your house. I mean, even if you weren't comfortable being the one to move your house, you can make a phone call to a person with a really big truck who will come move your house for you. And right. there's a lot of flexibility there, and it seems like there always is somebody somewhere that you could make that deal with. Yeah, I don't, I don't think by any means that this is like the perfect solution for everyone everywhere, and sure. you, Jack, and everyone else listening ought to move into a tiny house tomorrow by any means. I think it's just another good housing option that works really well for some people in some situations. Uh, I don't th I know I've listened to some of your other shows where I know you have kind of expressed the opinion a lot of tiny houses are stupid and going down the road with them, you know, every day yeah. is an idea. And I do kind of agree with that. It's my house weighs 
dry weight before I moved all my stuff in and have my, you know, canned goods and my firewood and my clothing and my dishes and books in here, it was a little over 10,000 pounds. That's a heavy trailer. There's a reason RVs do not weigh that much and are made to go down the road every day. Now, they also come apart over time and you get roof leaks and they're made lightweight and so stuff is not as durable and all that. Whereas my little house, I could... It's built better than most modern residential construction going up. So over time, if I wanted to keep it being able to move, I'd need to replace tires. But other than that, I could take the tires off. I could just set the the frame on concrete blocks. And in a 100 years, somebody could still comfortably live in this house, and it would not be coming apart and leaking at the seams or anything like that. So I think they're really good if you're in a position like me where you want to be somewhere. You can probably be there for a while but you might want to go somewhere else eventually, or you might have to go somewhere else eventually. And while I do have a couple friends that are, are kind of doing some education with tiny houses that actually do move almost every day down the road, it is certainly not the most efficient, you know, if that's really what you want to do. But if you want to be somewhere for a while and then be able to move your house with you to somewhere else, it can be a great option for that. I agree 100%. I mean, I hope that people that have listened to me over the years don't come away with the idea that I think, Any house with wheels is stupid. Uh, I think, I'll tell you where it comes from. It comes from the TV shows, which yes. you probably don't watch a lot of, but right? The TV shows of like TV, Tiny but... House Nation and all, where it's always like two idealistic young millennial bimbos, you know, because <laughs> men can be bimbos too, trust me. I'm not sexist with the use of that word at all, who they act like they are going to be in a different city every three days. And it's like, you need an RV. If you're actually going to do that, you need an RV. The idea that maybe once every several years you could move, and like I said, you know, you see these people, and yours is yours is really small, and it's a lot more portable. Some of the stuff these people build, you're like, you're going to tow that across the country with a pickup truck on a regular <laughs> basis. You are, you know, but even that house, right? So, like, you could hire somebody with a, you know, a, a big truck, a, a truck capable of doing the work, uh -huh. who can look ahead and say, hey, we can't go here because they'll, like, pull that roof off with that overpass who moves your house for you once every several years i think that actually is genius honestly so i just want to make sure i'm not i'm not completely anti-house on wheels you know um what about the cold climate though like you said 10 below and i'm like uh, no 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 i'm not doing it i'm not doing it it's like 48 degrees here today and i i'm like i don't even understand why texas is 48 degrees in in october like that's not supposed to be a thing Uh, that's not what I moved here for. I don't like cold. What's it like living in a tiny house in such a cold climate? Well, I'm kind of just the opposite. I absolutely hate being hot. I get really whiny and miserable and annoying <laughs> around. If it gets over like about 65 degrees, I can handle 70 as long as there's no humidity. And anything over that, I'm pretty much not a functional human being anymore. So I love the cold. Um, a lot. I got a ton of questions about, you know, how you live there in such a harsh and miserable climate. I'm like, well, it is harsh, but you live somewhere harsh too. You just have the opposite harsh. You have heat. I think everywhere comes with its own set of challenges. And I don't know that anyone is more miserable or difficult than another. They just have different challenges. You got to figure out how to stay cool and how to keep your veggies from not dying of heat stroke. You know, I got to figure out how to stay warm and keep my vegetables from freezing. You know, we both have our, our issues. They're just different ones. But I personally just like the cold issues better. And and then I get so many uh, people that are concerned about, oh, we hope, you know, it's 10 degrees out or minus 10 outside. We, we hope you're warm and cozy. I can see the 
thermometer or the thermostat in my house right now. I heat with wood. It's about 75 degrees in here, and I have three windows open, and I could open more of them or open them wider if I get too hot. Um, one advantage of a really small space is it's very easy to heat or cool if you're trying to cool because it's well insulated and it's just not very many square feet. And so uh, some of those things actually get a lot simpler when you have a very small space just because of, of that. It's not hard to heat or cool 160-ish square feet. Yeah, I, I actually hate the heat here, too. I, I, I'm not happy anywhere. I'm a miserable man. I really <laughs> am. Um, I actually think, though, that... People are surprised that so many people live off-grid, whether it's tiny house or not, in the northern climates. And I actually find it to be, like you were saying toward the end there, a much more reasonable thing to do. Because I can always burn something to make heat. And air conditioning is an energy hog. It takes a lot of energy to run air conditioning, even in a fairly small home. Whereas if I put in a good quality stove and throw a couple logs in there, guess what? I got heat. So I think that the, the challenges are unique. To, you know, Both sides have challenges, but it's a lot easier to overcome being cold than it is to overcome being hot when it comes to trying to live without being plugged into the grid. Yeah, and you can always, I mean, if nothing else, you can put more clothing on when it's cold. At some point when it's too hot, there's only so much you can take off. But, yeah, there are a lot more ways to, to get heat that are not electricity intensive. And, I, and I'm aware there's a few things people have come up with to, to you know, help cool a place without requiring lots of electricity. But that really is the easiest way to do it is have lots of electricity. Um, but heating... I have a backup propane heater. I have a wood stove. I am just as toasty and cozy as I ever want to be in here, no matter how cold it is outside. And and that really is just, I think, a lot simpler. Absolutely. So um, what do you do as far as, like, what is your toilet solution? I think you use a composting toilet. There's people like, oh, that's gross or whatever. It's really not, is it? No, it's not at all. And it's funny when people who have never encountered one talk out, for one, they think it's really gross. And two, I get comments like, oh, well, I could do that, but my wife, girlfriend, etc., some some woman can't, which I find hilarious because <laughs> I've had a lot of friends over here over the years, both just, you know, to hang out or have dinner and some overnight guests and such. And without fail, when I have a female friend here and they say, oh, I need to use your toilet, and I give them a quick rundown, this is how the composting toilet works, they're like, okay, good to go, and disappear into the bathroom. Guys are like, um, I'll, I think I'll pee on a tree, which is totally fine. I, I think I'll just wait till I go home, and I'm like, okay, whatever. But anyway, I found guys much more squeamish about it than women, which I think is funny. But yes, it's not gross at all. I actually find it less gross than cleaning a, uh, you know, regular flush toilet with splattery water everywhere. Um, <laughs> I, I have other setups here, like carrying all my water by hand that I do hope to not do the rest of my life, um, because it's not the most convenient, even though it's been working for me for a while. But a composting toilet, I have no desire to, ever in my life go back to a flush toilet in my house. I was going to say when you say it's always like, well, the, you know, the, the gal would have the problem with it, and it may be wrong, it may not be right, but I find in like 99% of you know marital relationships, it is the woman that cleans the toilet. <laughs> right? And the guy's the one that's like, I don't want to clean the toilet, right? So like the guy's the one that has apparently the toilet ick factor anyway. I think it's and just because we get away with it, honestly. Who are going to say, I will never, ever use a composting toilet. I'm sure there are some. They just apparently aren't my friends. Yeah. I, I don't think that, like you said, most of them that say that have never used one, so they don't even know what they're saying no to. 
It's the same person that says, well, I won't eat this particular food. And you go, have you ever tried it? And they go, no. Right. Okay, well, maybe you'd like it. I don't know. I mean, you have to try it to know that. Um, what about bears, man? You're in, you're in bear country. I am in bear country. I am in the uh, middle of not only lots of black bears, but the densest grizzly population in the lower 48. You get, you can get more if you go up to Alaska, but, um, outside of that, there's more grizzly bears here than anywhere else in the world. Um, what about them is I found that people tend to either have one of two opinions about grizzly bears. Either they think that they are vicious animals that wake up every single morning looking for a person to eat or that they're really cuddly and cute and I'd like to feed them cookies and pet them. Um, the truth is somewhere in between there. I kind of think of them a little bit like the way I would treat a, a semi, you know, tractor trailer if I was walking down the road uh, edge of a highway. I don't think most semi drivers are out to kill me, but they're really big and they're going really fast and they're so much bigger than me that even if I have the right away or if I'm not doing something wrong, if I do anything where I get in their way, I could get killed because that's just a fact. They're bigger and stronger and faster. Um, I've seen quite a few bears personally in my life. I like to backpack. I like to uh, photograph wildlife. I've probably seen over over a hundred different grizzlies and quite a few black bears over the years. And I've thankfully never had a problem with one around my house. I, I partially accomplished that by making sure there's nothing that smells like food around outside, like my compost pile that I do have, um, you know, put new compost kind of in the middle of it. I've never had anything get into a compost pile, though I do have bears come through my clearing. Uh, I have bird feeders, but they are on a pulley system that's way up in the trees, far out of reach of, of any bear, unless it learns how to untie knots and work my pulley, and none have done that yet. Um, I don't ever leave trash outside. I, you know, I'm just, I'm careful with those things. And so far I've never had a conflict. I know it's possible. I have a personal acquaintance here who was actually eaten last year. I uh, left a wife and five kids. He saved his partner's life who he was with and he was killed. It's kind, I mean, things can go wrong. I always carry bear spray if I'm walking anywhere. That's, if people aren't familiar with that, it's basically like the mace most women would put in their purse, except it's a really big can and it sprays really far. Um, but it, it would be effective against any mammal with mucous membranes. So I would also use that if I ran into a very aggressive moose or a very aggressive animals, you know, any, anything <laughs> like that. Um, I keep one in my car. I keep one in my backpack. I keep one right inside the door of my house. Um, and I just, I try to be careful and aware most bears are not out to get you. They'd rather do their own thing. If you don't surprise each other, that's best. I have like motion detector lights that'll flick on at night if anything's moving around outside or if I'm moving around outside to try to help, you know, prevent me and any wild thing, you know, running into each other by surprise and so on. Um, so it just, it requires being aware. And I know a lot of people get very freaked out about that, but I have friends who, like, I got a friend who lives in, like, downtown Washington, D.C., one of my best friends that I know from growing up. And even people like her will be like, ooh, bears, scary. But she'll call me and tell me, oh, yeah, I went for a run this morning, and there was a, a drive-by shooting on my street. And they live in a nice area, not, like, in a slum. And I think, and you're scared of bears here? Like, I think bears are more predictable and less scary. So I, I guess a lot of things people are scared of depends on what you're used to and the dangers you're more familiar with and comfortable with but bears while i very much am aware they could kill me um i find them less scary than living around a lot of the two-legged animals 
Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that probably, too, like when you're out and about, you know, carrying bear spray, means of defense, et cetera, that's all a good idea. But the bigger problem that bears tend to be is less trying to eat a person and more you don't have the right protocols in place. So they tear apart your house or, you know, raid your refrigerator and destroy things because they want the good food that we have. And, and so having the right protocols in place is a big part of capping that down. It seems like that's what you've done. Yeah, like taking care of garbage. It's actually mandatory via the county in this area if anyone has a garbage can, which I share one with my landlords. But it has to be a bear-proof one, and they, there's a steel frame in there, and the, the lid's actually clipped off, closed in a couple places. And they test those by dumping them in a cage with captive grizzlies and seeing how long it takes them to get into it. I think it has to hold up to their attack for at least an hour. Um, they're really uh, Stuff like that is really effective if you don't do stupid things like pile extra bags of trash on top of the lid or not close the lid and, and so on. But um, most bears, I mean, they're just out to get food. So if they come by your house and they find a giant pile of delicious garbage and can eat it, because a lot of people also think they're just carnivores. Bears are not. They're omnivores. They're much like people. They eat seeds and grass and plants and animals and large game and, and pretty much everything, including garbage. But if a bear gets to associate with, ooh, every, just like your birds at a bird feeder, every yep. time I come here, there's something good to eat they're going to come back and you're going to get more of them if they think hmm something smelled here good but i swatted at it for a while and rolled it over and i couldn't get anything i went on my way there's not much use going back there because there's nothing there you yeah, know that by was... proxy you know if they uh if they find a few places where that's true then they start to say well any of these kind of square boxes that these uh big hairless apes live in have good stuff yes and that's why important to kind of everybody use common sense because it's not just your house you're risking you're risking everybody's house because then they become like, yeah, these, these hairless monkeys that live in these boxes, they always have good stuff. <laughs> right. Right. So fortunately I haven't had a problem with that. People say, well, what would stop a bear from getting into your actual house? Well, nothing really, unless you have a concrete bunker. If a bear real, especially <laughs> something that's a grizzly really wants to come in, it can, it generally doesn't want to because most of the time they'd rather avoid humans and their human smells or a dog. And my dog, you know, is here as well. And I'm sure any bear with a nose can smell that. And it'd be a lot of work and there's other easier things to eat and so on. But, you know, there's not anything, like I said, other than an actual concrete bunker that would probably stop a very motivated bear from getting into a house. And that's why I have a firearm here, you know, but yeah, I've never, it, never had to use it, never had a conflict with any of the several hundred bears I've encountered. Yeah, I mean, there was a, a friend of mine, they had a kind of a remote cabin, and it was black bear country, not even grizzlies here. And they had uh, some bait, and they had like a 150-pound steel plate on top of a basically an outside cooler. Mm -hmm. And they thought, well, this will keep the bears out. And you know, like, no, if you can lift it, a bear can lift it. But what was <laughs> ironic is they're looking out and they see a, a black bear, and it was you know a smallish black bear, like you know probably a recently separated cub, like 120 pound ish black bear. And he walks uh -huh. up, sniffs it, and it wasn't like getting up on it. It just basically took one paw and just flipped it, like it was you know like it just like moved through the air, like he was flipping a, a soda can off it. And started tearing into it. They ran out and chased them away and all, but it was like, yeah, they're they're a little bit stronger than we you know think they are. Like pound for pound, the the strength of a bear compared to a human is is you're like you said, if they want in something, they're gonna get in. So the key is to make them not think there's a good reason to be in there. 
Yeah, and you're not going to outrun one, even though most bears most of the time are ambling along very slowly yeah. and looking kind of roly-poly and fat. They can run more than twice as fast as you for not for long distances, but for a short distance. And so, but yeah, all just, I have to do is outrun so, the guy with me. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true. And that's what my, my acquaintance that I knew last year did not do, and the other guy got away, and, uh. and he's this anymore but yes that is true <laughs> don't 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 try to run no that's that's absolutely the truth um so what do you do for the income quotient here i imagine that you don't need a lot of it based on the way you're living but we all need some right right that's uh that's one of the advantages i've of this lifestyle i get to do pretty much what i want and be like semi-retired And that's partially because most of the things I want don't require a whole lot of money. Like I like going on long walks in the woods and, you know, photographing wildlife that took some money to have a camera. But once you have it, it's virtually free indefinitely after that and, and so on. Um, but I, of course, do still need some income. I, I do buy some propane. I, you know, drive places. So I need gasoline. I have a, a cell plan that lets me get internet and do things like upload videos and talk to you right now. And that I haven't figured out anyone willing to let me barter anything to a phone company yet for service. So, um, yes, there are still things I need cash for. I kind of currently do a whole lot of different odd jobs and they vary a lot with the season, which I enjoy just because I tend to get bored doing the same thing over and over. Um, my most steady one is I do a little bit of house cleaning year round, but that's usually only one day a week. Um, house cleaning is not my favorite thing ever, but it's not terrible. Most of the time the owners aren't around. I get to listen to books or podcasts, clean a house, get paid pretty well. And so that works for me. But the rest of the time I, I help with either stuff around this property that I live on, um, which I'm, I'm not paid for, but that's part of what I do. And then just, I mean, I've helped people with their gardening, with landscaping, lawn mowing, property maintenance, repaint a building in the winter. It's a lot of snow shoveling. We get a lot of snow. So if it gets heavy enough, there are times when everyone's shoveling roofs and so on. And so it's just a variety of things like that. And I, none of it's a real, you know, reliable, uh, paycheck amount I can count on, but it's all added up to be enough that I can keep doing what I'm doing and, you know, save a little bit and pay all my bills. And so that works for me. Gotcha. Um, what is, what is kind of your get out and about plan when you get really deep snow drifts? I mean, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania and most of our snowstorms, yeah, they're inconvenient, but they're not that big a deal. But occasionally we'd get, you know, a big nor'easter or something and you'd get, you know, six foot drifts. I think in Wyoming they call that Wednesday. So <laughs> what, what, how do you handle that when like you need to go somewhere and you've got this massive amount of snow? That people ask me all the time, what do I do when I'm snowed in? That has never happened. I've lived in Wyoming for 13 going on 14 years now. That's, It just never happened. I grew up in Pennsylvania as well in kind of south central PA and back east and most other places with less snow, it's a bigger mess. It's mm. wet, it's sloppy, it gets it's icy. Heavy. No one <laughs> is expecting it. When you live here, when it's 10 below, nothing is wet. Nothing is icy, and everyone is expecting it because it snows all winter pretty much every day or every other day or whatever. Anyway, so, like, I have a friend who went to public school in this area growing up, and in the whole way through graduating high school, she never had a single snow day. Um, people are just planning on it and expecting it, and the roads – 
while they will often be snow packed, like you're just driving on on solid snow instead of bare pavement, they're not icy. It's slightly slicker than bare pavement, but it's nothing like having black ice. People tend to have four-wheel drive vehicles. They tend to put good all-season or winter or even studded tires on. You you just keep things like a shovel and gravel in the back of your rig in the winter. Half the county has snow plows on the front of their trucks. Um, there's big equipment as far as like, you know, the county and state road maintenance. They have a huge fleet of big equipment that moves snow all the time. And I, I've just, I've never been snowed in. If I need to go somewhere, you shovel out and you get there. The only thing that really does close roads around here is avalanches. I live in a mountainous area and at times the entire mountaintop will, you know, slide down across the road and that will close the road until it can be cleared. Um, usually within a day, but, but that's really the only reason a road will actually close here. Yeah. And I think there is a big difference. You know, you mentioned wet a couple of times, but the type of snow, like out West, you guys get dry yes. snow. So like I, I, you, you get that occasionally in the Northeast, not usually, but sometimes, and you go out and like, okay, you got three foot of snow on a, on a, on the pavement and you got to shovel it and it's the dry snow. And you, you can shovel like a three foot stack on the end of a number 10 coal shovel, like pick it up yeah. it's like a feather and you just toss it. You get wet snow and it's a foot deep. And that one shovel of snow, you know, it weighs like, like 50 pounds. So it's a big difference just in the type of snow that you get. And I guess you guys just don't get much of that wet snow because if it's that cold, it's, it's not going to be wet snow. Yeah, usually the only time there'd be anything wet is like the first snow or two in the fall and the last couple in the spring. And at that point, most of the snow is gone and it's not that deep. And so that having a wet snow is just generally not a problem. And it's so much I know people look at the snow I shovel in and they're picturing that like four inch deep stuff that weighs about the same as concrete <laughs> that they've shoveled before. And they're like, oh, that's so impressive it's really not it's really really light we can yeah. get like 24 inches of snow to an inch of water or something like that here it's really really dry snow <laughs> yeah it's the stuff where you, if you run a snowblower through it it's just like it looks like cotton flying through the air and you yeah do and it. half the time you can move it with a broom you don't yeah. even need a shovel yeah i like i actually like snow like that i don't like <laughs> it, the cold that goes with it but i like the snow it's kind of cool looking <laughs> Um, so you do a lot of like, uh, homesteading stuff. You grow your own food, but you don't grow tomatoes. Why don't you grow tomatoes? Everybody grows tomatoes. Everyone grows tomatoes. I get messages about, why don't you, you should just do this. You should just do that. Don't you like tomatoes? I have friends that live in Moscow, Russia. They can grow tomatoes. So you can too. Where I live happens to be colder than Pretty close. There's a couple other spots in Wyoming that are a hair colder, actually, but pretty close to colder than anywhere in the lower 48. We are usually colder than most of the populated areas of Alaska, and occasionally we're colder than the North Pole. Um, I don't entirely understand the the climate and weather reasons for why that happens, because I'm up at a little over 6,000 feet of elevation. I know there's people in Colorado living much higher than that who aren't as cold. Um, so I don't understand why all that happens, but but it is true. I If you garden, and I know a lot of your subscribers and followers do, um, you know, if you get any little seed packet, it tells you, whatever, these peas will take 50 days to maturity or these tomatoes will take whatever. That's relying on there being a frost-free growing season of that many days long. If you go to one of those little, like, gardening calculators you plunk in where my parents live in south central pa it tells you here's your first frost date here's your last frost date you have like a 160 day growing season 
If you put my area in, what it tells you is no growing zone, year-round frost risk. And and that's true. We can get frost any night of the summer. We can get a little snow any night of the summer. So everything I grow, if you picture all the things people say, oh, do this to winter garden and this this technique for winter gardening, and you can grow these 12 veggies for winter gardening. Yes, that is how I grow things in the summer here. Got you. And that makes a lot of sense. So what, what are some of the things that really do the best for you then? So best for me is not anything, of course, like a tomato that likes being warm. Um, I, all the green leafy things just go crazy. I can grow far more chard and kale and every variety of lettuce and spinach and uh, beet greens and cabbage and broccoli and cauliflower. You know, all that stuff just thrives. Mine don't usually die until it's down to like you know, 10 degrees, nine degrees, single digits. Um, and then most of the root things I can pretty much guarantee I'll always get a good crop of onions, garlic, carrots, beets, potatoes. I don't get huge ones because usually the plants do freeze before, before they get quite as mature as they, they would like to. Um, but mostly root crops and, and the leafy crops. Other than that, I can grow some peas Beans are kind of a toss-up. I get the shortest, quickest varieties that there are, and some years I get a decent bean crop depending what the weather does. Some years I don't. Kind of the same with zucchinis and summer squash. I have heavy-duty frost covers. If we get a warm year, I can get a decent harvest. Some years it's just so cold the plants freeze, and, and I don't get any at all. Do you do anything with, like, a greenhouse? or I mean, you mentioned row covers type for season extenders. What, is that pretty much your only season extender? It is, and that's and I use them straight through the summer because I'm extending my season from nothing to something. Um, <laughs> but a greenhouse could work well. It's not a good I, ideal solution for my particular situation. I'd love to have one in the future someday down the road, but right here, for one, everything I currently have is mobile and can be packed up and on wheels, and I don't own the ground, so installing major infrastructure doesn't make sense in this spot. Two, if I was going to use it through the winter, it would need to be – structurally somewhat massive, not mm -hmm. one of those little snap-together kits, because there's a reason buildings in this area, building codes say they need to be built to hold 180 pounds per square foot, you know, structurally. Um, that's the kind of snow loads we get. And and even if you have something that can hold all that, like I have a friend here with a, a big house who has a greenhouse attached to their side of the, their house, which I would like to do somewhere down the road, Um the snowbanks can get so tall that, and she's not growing any real food in there, mostly just flowers and such and kind of maintaining them through the winter. But the snowbanks will get so tall that even with a full height, I don't know what the ceiling is, like 10 feet high or something, greenhouse like that, the snowbanks outside are taller than the greenhouse roof, even though it is heated and stays melted off. And so the plants are not getting any sunlight um, and they start to look very unhappy. And most vegetables and food crops require a good bit of light. So for multiple reasons, it's just not a good solution for me right here. I'm also happen to be on the north side of a hill, which of course when you're somewhere cold and snowy is not the right place to be. If you have an option, pick the south side. I've got an awesome spot. It's not my ground. That's where I am right now. But that also makes it less ideal for doing that kind of thing. So do you do you do any foraging or do you engage in any fishing, hunting, uh, collection of uh, calories that way at all? Yes, I, I love to go walking around the woods anyway. So that's perfect. I, I generally try to um, forage for mushrooms of various kinds 
wild berries. Some years we have great wild berry crops. This spring we had some really late freezes. It, it snowed on the first day of summer here. Um, that is pretty late even for here. And it froze all the wild berry blossoms, so there just wasn't a berry crop this year. But most years I can go pick quite a few service berries, choke cherries, currants, um, elderberries, all that kind of stuff grows wild here. And I do. And I pick it and I, I dry them or juice them or can them or various things like that. And, and also wild herbs and leafy things like I use a lot of nettle. I don't have to plant it. It grows wild anywhere wet here and so on. Fishing, I've never really gotten into. I have a lot of friends who fish, so I often have people who are happy to give me extra fish that they don't want, and I'm fine with tagging along for it. Could do it if I had to, just not something I particularly love just for the sake of doing it. And hunting, yes, a neighbor and I here, because they have a, a somewhat large shop with a setup to do it all. We kind of work together to usually put two elk in the freezer every year, and that provides the vast majority of all meat eaten in either household through the whole year because an elk is a large animal. Absolutely, and about the best quality protein on the planet as well. Yeah, um, what so. are your plans for redundancy if something goes wrong, you know, and you need outside assistance or what have you? Um, I mean, I do have a cell phone here if I need to, to get real outside assistance. I mean, I could call 911 like anybody else, but like anyone else in the area, it's, 911 is not coming in two minutes. <laughs> Um, I, most things I have redundancies as much as possible for myself. I mean, a heat with wood, I've also got a propane backup because of course, if I have to be away from the house, there's no one to put wood in the stove and it goes out and then the house freezes. Um, but the propane, you know, backup heater, I don't normally use, but that can come on on a thermostat and, you know, provide a backup for things like that. I have... I'm not a doctor or anything, but I have taken like wilderness first aid courses and uh, wilderness first responder courses. I have a pretty substantial first aid kit around here. Most anything that I would know how to do anyway, I could take care of here at least temporarily till there was some other, um, you know, backup place or person uh, to get to. Um, I, I just kind of try to plan that because this is what I've seen in life and through history, that things are going to break and go wrong and fail. And so I just always have a number two or number three option for what I'm going to do when those things eventually inevitably happen. Got you. So what, what would you say that like the biggest rewards are for you in, in living this way of life compared to like what you see everybody else out there doing? Oh, the biggest one I think is freedom would probably kind of sign it up, uh, sum it up, like the freedom to do what I want. Um, other than the one day I clean, sometimes I have to be there at a particular time, not even every week for that. But other than that, I can wake up when I feel like it. And I have never been a morning person. I am a night owl and people tell me you'll get used to it. That's not true. I have milked cows at 430 in the morning. I've opened restaurants at ridiculous hours in the morning and um, I never got used to it. So I love that I can like sleep till I wake up without an alarm clock. And then I can lay in bed for five minutes and pet my dog who's sleeping at the foot of the bed. And then I can get up and go throw some wood in the wood stove and then I can have a cup of tea and so on. And, and also just freedom to, you know, I have to do work. I have to, to get things done. If I don't chop my wood, I will be cold. If I don't carry water, I won't have any. If I don't empty my toilet, eventually you can't deposit anything new into it. So there's stuff that you have to do 
that's not optional, but most of them are also not emergencies. None of them have to be done at 7.27 a.m. on Tuesday, you know. So it gives me a lot of freedom to to live and do what I like when I like. And then financially, kind of back to the thing of most of the things I like don't cost a lot of money. Um, it, it gives me the freedom to not have to work for a lot of money and have more time to do all those other things I like, like go for hikes in the woods or photograph wildlife or putter around in my garden or make a good meal or whatever else I want to do. Gotcha. Um, so, you know, most Americans have like a weekly trip to the grocery store. Some have damn near a daily trip. One of the <laughs> ways that we avoid that with prepping is by having a significant amount of food on hand. How do you manage to minimize your need to go? Because I I'm, I'm, imagine going to the grocery store for you is a little more work than it is for me. To minimize that when you have limited space. Um, pretty much the same things that you would do. I My ideal would be to have a year's worth of food storage, and that's not just an arbitrary number. That's more because I'd like to produce as much of my own food as I can. And if my potatoes are ready to dig now, I won't have more potatoes ready to dig to another year. So I need to dig a year's worth and so on. Um, I, I'm not able to produce a hundred percent and I, I'm sure I would never be at a hundred percent because I like a few things that grow in areas far warmer than I ever want to live in. But I would like to ideally at some point be producing, you know, 85 or something percent of all the food that I eat and currently I'm in slightly too north-facing and cold and temporary of a spot to be able to make that quite happen. But I have a big pantry. Um, uh, if people ever look at pictures of my house, about half of my house is kitchen. I love to cook. That was important to me. That's one of the cool things about tiny houses. They generally, you can build them to exactly what you do and, and your needs and such. So I made room for the things that were important to me. I do a lot of cooking. I have a large pantry and I can usually store something about in the neighborhood of six months of food here. And so my grocery trips are not usually, I can't even say I have a weekly schedule. I just kind of have a master grocery list. And if I pull something out and think, Oh, I'm down to my last two pounds of rice, or that's the last can of coconut milk that's sitting there looking at me now or whatever, I just put it on the list. And then when I feel like it and have time, I go to the store and restock on things and I have enough things here and I know how to cook enough things. If I'm out of one thing, I just make something different and eat it. You know, it's not a big deal. It's never an emergency. What is, what is like your long-term vision? Like, do you see yourself staying in this place or even if you go to a different piece of land, the general area, For forever? Do you see maybe at some point getting land of your own? Do you think maybe someday I just might want to, you know, like it sounds like you would never like check out Florida, but maybe northern <laughs> Idaho or New Hampshire or some other northern climate or even like the wilds of Alaska? Do you have any kind of vision toward maybe doing something different at some point? Yes, I'm sure that my current setup right here will not last forever, um, if for nothing else than the folks who own the property, even if they don't get sick and tired of me. They're fairly elderly, and so at some point they won't be around, and I have no idea what the kids will do with the property once they inherit it, but my guess would be sell it, and my guess would be that would add up to me not being able to park my house here anymore. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that at some point that will go away for that reason, if if for no other reason before that. Um Yes, long term, I would really like to be on my own land. And yes, I would like to stay somewhere pretty cold. I'd love to move over to a south-facing mountain edge instead of the north-facing one. Um, and yeah, I'd probably move into a place 
where I could live in my tiny house just as is, you know, just hitch up, repark it onto my new property and live there for a while. But very long term, because food and gardening and all that is one of my favorite things, I would like to actually have a small house attached to the ground, um, primarily so that I could have a root cellar underground, you know, accessible from my house without having to bundle up and go outside to get to it kind of thing. Um, and be able to, to really do more because of the, the south facing aspect and that it's not silly to put in more permanent infrastructure because then it's mine and so on. Be able to really get up to more of that long-term goal of being able to produce the vast majority of, of things I need and eat at my own place. So yeah, I see myself kind of doing the same thing. And when I say a little bigger house, I'd kind of, my, my house is basically a rectangle right now. It's 24 foot long trailer and it's about seven feet wide on the inside. If I could just stretch that out to being like a 24 foot square, mm. I'd really have room for everything I I need. I could have a little bigger pantry and a little bigger kitchen and a little bigger dining table and all that. Um, and and then if I had so that would have to be a site built home then. That would have to be a site built home, you know, with a, a hopefully a, a root cellar slash basement, you know, storage dug into the ground. You have a that mansion would... then. I mean, after that, I think that's one of the things about living like in these tiny homes is that like. You move into what we think of as being a small house after living in a tiny home, and it's like, wow, I got so much space now. Yeah, and so, yeah, kind of long-term, and that's probably not none of that's like next year or anything, but long-term, that would be my, my hope to have a small house attached to the ground, attached to a root cellar in the ground, attached to a south-facing greenhouse on the side of the house that could also be heated with my wood stove heat from the house and could solar heat the house if it was a sunny day, that kind of thing. Um, you know, somewhere still in a pretty mountainous and cold area um, of the world because I like the mountains and I like the cold. Gotcha. And and you actually have quite a bit of stuff online where people can check in more into what you're doing, right? You want to maybe talk a little bit about that? And, you know, you mentioned any of your resources. I will have them all in the show notes for people. Yeah, I, uh, I well, originally I started kind of with a blog because when I first moved in here, there was questions I had about how do you deal with this thing or how do you deal with that that I couldn't, I'm sure somebody else had done them, but I couldn't find answers to, you know, that anybody had written about or anything online. So I started writing about it, figured if I was going to learn the hard way, somebody else may at least benefit. Uh, and then over time, that kind of turned into there was a few things I did videos of instead. Photography and writing has always actually been more of my natural thing than video, but so many more people were interested in videos because people don't read anymore or less people read or not as many people read as much anymore. Anyway, um, I thought, well, if I'm trying to share useful information, I may as well put it where the most, most people are going to find it. So that's turned over time to be a lot less blogging and a lot more videos. So you can find a lot of the first history of my tiny house still on my blog, which is, uh, Fineth.blogspot.com. Fineth is the, the name of my house. It's Welsh for my nest. And you can find me by that handle pretty much anywhere online. Um, or, you know, youtube.com slash Fineth is now where most of the videos are. And there's 500 something videos there just showing a lot of aspects of my daily life and things that come up and how I deal with them and how I do this and how I do that. And I did this and it didn't work well. So now I do this instead and, and all that kind of stuff. So let's finish up with tell people the, what do you call the little homestead you have and what does that mean? 
Well, Fineith is Welsh. I'm not Welsh. I've just always thought it was a really pretty language. <laughs> and that's spelled F-Y-N-Y-T-H, two separate words. Um, and it, it means my nest. And that's kind of how I think of my place here. I've got my little little nest tucked into the trees in between the bird nests and the squirrel nests and the moose and all of that kind of thing. And um, it does what I need it to do, kind of like a bird's nest. I've never seen a... Anything from a sparrow to a robin to a, you know, eagle build extra bedrooms onto their nest just to have extra space because they were a really cool bird. It does what I need. It gives me a place to keep the stuff I need to have, to be warm when it's cold outside, to be sheltered from the elements. And partially because I love doing so many things that are outdoors, from gardening to hiking to whatever, it just it works really well for me. I don't need that much indoor space because most of my activities are outside. So that's a, a very good setup for me personally. Well, the other analogy, I guess, is so when the eagle moves, it just makes a new nest. So with your home being mobile, if you decide you want to go somewhere else, the nest simply goes with you. Yeah, it's kind of nice. I don't have to recollect the sticks and build a new one. Because I've decided if we ever move from where I'm at now, I, I pretty much plan to die here. But if, if we ever do decide to move for some reason... I shouldn't say this on the air. I'm just burning it down and collecting the insurance. I I, <laughs> I am never moving all my stuff ever again. You know, I'm going to vacation with the dogs and, oh, look, it burned down. State Farm, sorry, guys. You owe me a check. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to move ever again. The idea of being able to actually just have your house moved and then all your stuff's there is is very appealing. I also think the lifestyle is very appealing. I think that's why more and more people are doing it in a variety of ways. There's people like, I would look at you, what you're doing is kind of the classic tiny house movement, right? Which is you mm -hmm. build a tiny house on wheels, you find a place, you put it there. We have people now doing it with school buses. We have people doing it with modified RVs. We have people taking like more of a compound approach. We have people doing the shed to house movement. But I think there's something definitely going on in America where people are looking for more freedom. And that's kind of how you summed it all up. And I think that there's a lot of flavors with it. And I thank you for uh, sharing your particular ice-capped version of that flavor with us today. Yeah, and I think it, it works different for different people for different reasons. And even some people who are like, I don't really like tiny houses, but I lived in one for three years so I could pay down all my debts mm -hmm. and save my money and then go do what I actually wanted. And, you know, a tiny house wasn't their long-term life dream. It was just a a thing that helped them accomplish the other things that were their dreams. I slept in the back of my truck for six months while traveling on the road. I didn't want to. But yeah. it was a way to get the skill set development and accept the low income that was necessary to get the skill set development so that I could further my career. And I think that's that's something else we've lost in America, and that's the concept of sacrifice. There's people that always want to romanticize the tiny house movement as being the perfect way to live or whatever, and I just don't think that's true for everyone. But I think a lot of people can see it as a stepping stone. Like, I think a lot of young, especially young people, really could you know take a couple different jobs in construction Uh, as their first jobs and end up building their own place from scraps, a, a large degree anyway, while they did that and developed that skill set. And by the time they were 30, be able to have, you know, a nice place completely paid for that isn't a tiny home anymore. And by the way, sell their tiny home off to somebody that wants to take that, that next step. So I think there's a lot of different ways to use it. Again, Ariel, thanks for being with us today on the show. Well, you're welcome. It was great to be here and uh, fun to chat with you. Well, great interview. I, I got to tell you guys, um, I do bash the tiny houses on wheels at times, 
But it was like I said in my interview here with Ariel, I don't bash the concept. I bash the idiocy of the 26-year-old morons who think they're going to use a half-ton truck to pull a 7,000-pound or 10,000-pound tiny house back and forth city to city every three weeks uh, when you watch them on cable TV. That's what I bash. I love this idea. And if I were you know, a 21-year-old guy out of the Army again like I was at one time in history and the type of information on this stuff was available that is today – it would probably be what I would do. I think a lot of you young people, if you want to be you know, a homestead owner by age 30, this is a way. It's not the way, but it is a way to get there and do so at an accelerated rate uh, rather than working for the gold watch for 50 years and hoping that you get to retire in your golden years uh, when you are most likely too old to really enjoy the fruits of your labor, whatever's left of them that the system has chewed up over those years. Make your dreams happen, and again, for many of you, I think this is the way. You know, I, When we talked about it, too, there are a lot of different ways this is going on. Uh, Bo and his wife are doing a really cool thing uh, on Facebook. You can check out a group there called Shed the House. Uh, Shed the House, and it's really awesome. They're turning tough sheds into homes. That's another way. Uh, we just had the Serenity Bus people on a few weeks ago, turning a bus into a tiny home. That is another way. Uh, there are people that are out there, they're buying regular homes, but they're buying them to Airbnb them, and they're buying multiple properties and they're effectively being landlords without all the problems of being a landlord because they have short-term tenants and they build the cost to have the house cleaned by somebody else right into it. There are so many ways to use homes and housing in one flavor or another to build your dreams. Don't be afraid to take a shot at it. Do it now while you can. Make the most of your dash. Think about this. It's October 30th. Tomorrow it is Halloween. What that really means is it's fixing to be November and Turkey Day and Christmas and the holidays and all of that stuff. And uh, all anxiety and New Year's Eve. And that means it will be 2020. Tick-tock, tick-tock. Make something out of your dash, guys. Do it. Make it happen. Remember always, you can support this show two ways. One is by becoming a member of the MSB. Look, short advertisement for MSB today. All you do is join. Yes, it's $50 a year. Then you log in. You look at all your discounts. Use the discounts over the next year. Put a couple hundred dollars in your pocket in return for 50 I shouldn't have to say anything else. And if you like this show, you support me and the work that I do, and you make sure that I'm always here, but you make money. Then you get like $200 worth of free eBooks. There's a bunch of cool stuff. You get every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced. It's awesome. There's over 2,000 episodes of the podcast now in zip files that you can get at uh, the Member Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. With that, the other way you can help support us, the painless way that doesn't really cost you anything directly, is to just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. I mean, if you're going to be buying stuff online, that's money you were going to spend anyway. Just start at tspaz, and no matter what you buy, you'll help us. But you can also see all the things that I've reviewed over the years for Amazon, and I have some really cool stuff available there, and it's all in alphabetical uh, categories, so you can see everything I've ever reviewed. Remember, if it's there, I own it. I use it, I spent my money on it, and I would do so again. If I wouldn't spend my money on it, I wouldn't recommend that you spend your money on it. So what do I got for you today? This is a product I brought around first in 2016. It's still the best one in the market for what it does, and it's for you guys that do airsoft. And I don't just mean the guys that run around the woods, just up in camouflage, shooting each other in a game. That's fun. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying airsoft is so much more than that. I get so much more trigger time than I would otherwise because I have blowback airsoft guns. 
And that means I can sit out on my porch and I can have a beer. I'm not going to drink a beer at the gun range. That's stupid. But I don't mind having a beer. Hey, I could have had a beer when somebody shows up at the house and tries to rob me. Right? And I could set up some things like some apple juice bottles, which are just about perfect size for the vital area of a chest in some random different places. And I can sit on my porch with my dogs and I can shoot my airsoft guns. I can draw from my holster. I can shoot and move. I can do all that stuff. And we do a ton of other things with airsoft. But as cheap as it is, it can be expensive with blowback because what's called green gas is very expensive. Now, green gas, that sounds like some environmentally friendly shit, right? Yeah, they make it sound that way, but it's not. Green gas is propane. Like propane and propane accessories, it's propane. They put some stuff in it so that it doesn't smell like propane. Basically, they don't put the stuff in it that they put in propane. They mask that odor. Because propane itself doesn't have a smell, so they don't want you to have to smell propane, which is no big deal when you're shooting airsoft. It's a tiny little bit of it. And they put some silicon oil in there. Well, you can put your own silicon oil in there with a thing called a propane airsoft adapter. The way it works, you just buy some silicon oil in a little, in a little bottle, put a couple drops in, and then you spray it into your magazines, and the, the gas into your magazines, and then you shoot. And then your gun stays operational and functional and doesn't break down. It's that easy. Why would you do this? Well... Because you can buy two pounds of the disposable green propane uh, bottles at Walmart for like seven, eight bucks. Or you can pay $21 a pound for green gas. So, because money, that's why. So I think everybody that uh, has handguns, that sees them as a viable means of self-defense, should train with Airsoft. I think it's a great way to train for yourself. It's a great way to train friends and family. It's a great way to work with people who you're not ready to put a firearm in their hands yet. It's a great way to introduce people to the idea. It is awesome. It makes you calm as a trainer because you're, you, know, you don't want to get hit with an airsoft gun, but you know you're not going to have a hole blown in your chest if you do. It's a good way to teach gun safety. It's awesome. Check it out. The Mad Bull Propane Adapter. You'll find it at tspaz.com. You'll see it at the survivalpodcast.com today as well. And you can always help support us by doing your online shopping where tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today is called One Light, and it's by Three Doors Down. I think John Adams selected songs that, uh, that made us think today that were maybe deeper than they seemed uh, as far as this whole week. And I also think he selected a lot of music that is kind of 80s rock music, maybe just a throwback to the Jack Spirico that used to have long hair and drive around in a, uh, a jacked-up Grand Prix LJ with a 455 in it, right? Um and his, his RCA uh, uh, stereo uh, with his uh, amplifier and 6x9s from uh, Radio Shack and what have you. Uh, that would cost more than the car. <laughs> That's what some of this music makes me think of. Now, this, this song's not that old. Three Doors Down is not Three Doors Down. It's not that old. But they have that same sound uh, as a lot of your, your 80s rock bands or your hair bands and what have you, especially this one. Uh, but this song's called One Light, and really what it's about is making the most of your dash. And not just for yourself, for others. This song is really about leaving the world in some way better than you found it. And this is what I think is important to understand about that. So many people think of like these, these really huge luminary people who improve the whole world for everybody or something. And that's like a, the standard to live by. Well, sure, maybe. But I think we all are capable of doing some things while we're here to make the world a little bit better of a place. And if we all did that, the world would be a hell of a lot better of a place. Well, we don't get to decide if everybody does that. But we do get to decide if we do. So take the step. Make the world a little bit better than it was when you got here. 
With that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.